Good morning once again. It's always good to see your faces. If you do me a favor, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. There's some Bibles in the pews in front of you if you want to use those. Nothing I like to hear more than the sound of Bibles being opened up on a Sunday morning. It just sounds nice, doesn't it? Yeah. So before we get into the text, I wanted to tell you a bit about one of my heroes, my grandpa Cunningham. I am actually, believe it or not, a big fan of history. Love history. It's one of my favorite reasons. I love going to Charleston, right? You go to Charleston and, and everything in that city is history. Like you touch it. It's just, it's all, it's all history. And I love that. And, and really my grandpa Cunningham is a big reason why. So he, he was like walking, talking history. He passed away several years ago, but he was a part of the generation that's known as the greatest generation. People who experienced the Great Depression and went on to, to fight in World War II. And my grandpa lived through that. And that, that was really was one, one of my favorite periods of, of history to study. And so I would remember as a kid, just sort of sit at his feet and listen to him tell me story after story from his life. And he was the oldest of five brothers during the Depression. And when he was about 15 years old, he dropped out of high school in order to, to go and find a job, go and find work and help support the family. And he ended up uh, finding a job on a cruise ship as a cabin boy. And he spent much of his life out to sea, and he was able to work his way up from cabin boy all the way up to the head waiter at the captain's table. This was a big deal back then. I mean, back then, cruises weren't something that, you know, the middle class family could afford to go on like we can now. I mean, back then, cruises, the only people that could afford to go on those were, were your upper class. And, and the, the captain's table was reserved for all the celebrities who happened to be on the ship. And so my grandpa actually got to wait on some of the most famous celebrities of his day. People like Bing Crosby, Frank Sinatra, Fred Astaire. I'm kidding, not kidding you. My, my grandpa had pictures, autographed pictures of all of these folks. In fact, he and Bing Crosby, he played a baseball game with Bing Crosby. Whenever the cruise ship would pull up to a port, all of the crew would get off and they would play a couple games of baseball. Well, when Bing Crosby found out about this, he wanted in on the game. And who's going to tell Bing no, right? Well, it turns out that he and my grandpa were the only ones who were left-handed. And so he ended up borrowing my grandpa's baseball glove. How cool is that, though? Right? And he would just tell me story after story like this. And during the war, the cruise ship uh, got turned into a troop transport. And he joined the Merchant Marines and actually was involved in many of the, the largest battles uh, during the war. His ship was actually even hit by a torpedo. So you get the sense of the kind of guy this was, right? The stories that he could tell. And he was a self-educated guy, um, brilliant. He ended up teaching himself navigation to the point where he actually taught navigation to folks who had like master's degrees. All from a guy who dropped out of high school when he was 15. Right? Before it was all said and done, he managed to meet three different presidents and he stepped foot on every single continent in the world. He's like, the, he's like real life Forrest Gump to me, right? And, and so I would remember just sitting and listening to him tell these stories. And he was from Brooklyn. He's an Irish New Yorker. So he had that great accent, you know, and I could listen to him talk for days. Now I know that that period of time, right? That, that period in history could not have been an easy one to live through. I don't doubt that, but there's a part of me, and maybe you get this. There's a part of me that's sort of jealous of him. I would love to have, have witnessed just a little bit of what he saw, right? To experience it's just a few of the things that he experienced. You, you can all acknowledge that there's a difference between knowing about something and actually like knowing it. Right? I, I knew about 
the depression. I knew about World War II, but my grandpa, and he knew, he knew those things in a way that I never could. There's a difference between knowing about something than actually knowing it. That's because participation changes everything, doesn't it? I bring this up because today we are wrapping up a series that we have been calling The Way. Right? And in this series, we've been journeying through, working our way through this large portion of Scripture in the Gospel of Luke. It, it, goes, it starts in chapter 9, and it goes all the way through chapter 19, and it culminates in the passage that we just heard read for us. But this passage of Scripture is known as the journey narrative, and it essentially follows Jesus on his final journey to the city of Jerusalem and ultimately to the cross, right? It, it kicks off in chapter nine when we're told that Jesus, from that point on, he resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. And the next 10 chapters are Jesus making his way there. But one of the things that we established the first week of this series is that the way Luke has put all this together, it's his desire for you and I to not only read this text as Jesus's journey to the cross, but we're meant to read it as our own journey to the cross as well. I mean, in the chapter that gets this whole thing started, in the verse, that's our theme verse for this entire series, Jesus says to his followers, hey, you want to be my disciple? You really want to be a part of what I'm a part of, what I'm doing in the world? Then here's what you got to do. You got to deny yourself. You've got to take up your cross daily and follow me. Participation changes everything. You see, on the one hand, the cross is a historical event. In fact, it's the most important historical event in the history of the universe, right? So the cross, it happened. But according to Jesus, the cross is meant to still happen because not only is it an event, it's also a way of life that Jesus calls his followers to live, to embrace the cross. You see, the cross, carrying our cross, is about continuing what God started in and through Jesus Christ, advancing the kingdom of God, bringing heaven here to earth by embracing a cruciform, sacrificial way of life. Because participation changes everything. And according to the calendar, today is Palm Sunday, right? It's when we look back and we remember, we celebrate Jesus's triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And so for Luke, the author of this gospel, this moment, this passage, this text, it's the culmination of his whole narrative, right? But at the same time, I believe that this text also, what it does is it brings you and I to the core of what it means to not only place our trust in the cross, but to embrace the way of the cross. So I'm gonna say it one more time. Participation, what? Changes everything, all right? Let's get into chapter 19. I know we just had it read to us, but I wanna make sure that we're all on the same page, right? So as Jesus gets close to Jerusalem, he sends two of his disciples ahead of him to go and, and locate a donkey. And not just any donkey, right? But it's a, it's a foal, it's a colt, it's the foal of a donkey, a donkey that's never been ridden before. Now, in the ancient world, it was really common for people on the edge of big cities like Jerusalem to have animals like donkeys available to rent. It's like a rent-a-car, right? You could ride it around town. I'm sure the gas mileage was great, right? But the smell, whew, just kidding. That was a horrible joke. Don't laugh at that. 
So the disciples, they go and they locate the donkey. They find what Jesus is looking for. More than likely, Jesus is familiar with this area. He knows there's a guy who has what he's looking for and he sends his disciples to secure it. They get the donkey, they bring it to Jesus, right? But here's my question. Why is Jesus waiting until now to ride a donkey? I mean, he's, he's maybe a half a mile away from Jerusalem. And he's just now deciding to ride a donkey. He's been walking all over the place, all over the entire country. And just now, he's decided to ride. Is he tired? No. I mean, the guy's been walking everywhere. What's he up to? Well, see, Jesus is self-fulfilling a prophecy, a very well-known prophecy during his time. It comes from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 where the prophet says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This prophecy was given about 500 years before Jesus was born. And it's a prophecy is given to the people of Israel. That's in order to help them identify how their true king, their Messiah, will come to him, come to them. He won't come with all this pomp. He's going to come to you in humility on a donkey, on a colt, a foal of a donkey. And so Jesus here is making a very provocative statement, isn't he, about who he understands himself to be. In his mind, who is he? I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm your rescuer. I'm your deliverer. I'm your Messiah. I am your king. And the people, they, they get caught up in this, right? They, they recognize this is what's happening and, and they begin to take off their cloaks and throw it on the ground in front of him, which is something you would do for royalty. And so this, this hype and this buzz begins to grow and it begins to grow. And now not only are Jesus' disciples doing it, but a whole crowd is doing it. And as they go along the road, they begin to shout, praise, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But this is a portion from Psalm 118, and more than likely, they were singing the whole song. And it speaks of this, of this victorious king, this conquering king, who's coming back to the city after a victorious battle. So you get a sense of where these people's minds are at. And they're ready to crown him, their king, right then and there on the spot. There's so much buzz. There's so much excitement. And it's swelling and it's growing and it's getting bigger, so much so that Jesus even says, if these people don't celebrate, the rocks are going to cry out. You feel that? Do you feel the electricity? Do you feel the buzz? Because here's what I think is so interesting. With all of this going around, him, him the whole time, Jesus doesn't seem to want to get in on the party, does he? Instead of buying into the hype, what's Jesus doing? He's weeping. And the word that's used here, it literally, it means weeping. Like this isn't just an emotional, he's not just shedding a tear after watching the notebook, right? He's ugly crying. I mean, he is weeping over this city. I mean, you think this is like the highlight of his public ministry career, right? The people are finally recognizing you as their Messiah, their King. They're ready to crown you right here and now. Why are you weeping? It's because Jesus saw something they didn't see. He knew something was terribly wrong. And in verse 42, he says to them, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And even though this crowd is all fired up, they're so excited, 
he knows they still don't get it. There's still a severe misunderstanding for what it means for him to be Messiah. And even more importantly, the kind of kingdom he's bringing with him. And he's right. Because just in a matter of days, these same people who are celebrating his arrival, guess what they're doing? They're screaming for his crucifixion. Jesus goes on to to speak a, a prophecy, a word of warning over the people. In verse 43, he says, The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. At the time of Jesus and the Israelites, the Jewish folks have been living under Roman oppression for decades. Decades. And the Romans, they were nice. It was oppression at its finest. And the tension around the time of Jesus was at an all-time high. I mean, over and over again, you read through the history books and you see that there was Jewish revolt after Jewish revolt. In fact, when Jesus was a child, some revolutionaries led a revolt against the Romans. and There was a mass crucifixion in his hometown. And so Jesus, as a boy, walked his streets seeing people on crosses all over the place. I mean, revolt after revolt, would-be messiahs, trying to lead these violent revolutions against the Romans. And over and over in the Gospels, you see Jesus warning the people. If you keep going down this road, it's not going to end well. If you keep trying to change things through violence, it's not going to end in your freedom. It's going to end in destruction. And we know that this prophecy was eventually fulfilled about 40 years later. In the year 70 AD, when the Romans finally grew tired of the Jewish folks, and they squashed them. They came in, ransacked the city. They completely leveled the temple. And according to the historian Josephus, he estimates around 1.1 million people were killed. They didn't get it. Jesus was the Messiah. He was coming to set things right. But how was he doing it? With an army? With the cross. There are so many things that you and I, that we, could, that we could chew on here, right? That we could park ourselves in. But there's one thing that I want to point out because as I read through this text, it grabbed me. It's an interesting thing about the church calendar is you come back to the same events, you read many of the same scriptures year after year, and new things jump out at you. And for me this year, the thing that grabbed a hold of me I couldn't let go of, it's the tears. The tears. I believe that the tears of the Messiah are at the very heart of the gospel. And you cannot separate Jesus' message from the tears. I mean, this, this word of warning, this prophecy, it's not coming from sort of some sort of stern, cold place. It's not coming from some sort of retributive justice. Jesus isn't trying to get revenge back on these people. It's coming to us through tears. It's coming from a broken heart. It's coming from a place of love and compassion for these folks. Jesus is not okay with the fact that things aren't okay. You see, the way of the cross is ultimately the way of love, specifically the way of compassion. This is what I want us to talk about this morning. What does it mean to commit ourselves to the way of compassion? Second Corinthians tells us that God is the father of all compassion. All compassion. All literally means what? All. And this word in the Greek, one of my favorite words in the New Testament, it's this word splonknon, 
So I said in the last service, that'd be a great name for like a Rottweiler, wouldn't it? It's my dog spunked on. It's weird. But it literally means to feel with your bowels, to feel with your guts, to feel with your intestines, to be very literal. I know it sounds kind of funny at first, but it makes sense. When you hear about somebody you love going through something difficult, where do you feel that? Ugh. See, God is the father of all compassion. He feels it in his guts. He feels it in his bowels. When it comes to the brokenness of our world, you're aware of the fact that our world's a mess, right? Don't get me wrong. It's also a beautiful place, a place that God loves. But when it comes to the mess, when it comes to the brokenness, Jesus reveals to us a God who doesn't stand at a distance. It's a God who actually comes down into the mess. He becomes one of us. He feels it himself. It's a God who is invested, who is involved, who is emotionally invested in what is going on here in the world. I love how Eugene Peterson translates John 1. It says, the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Don't you love that? And when it comes to the mess of the world, the brokenness in our lives, our God does not stand at a distance. Our God is a God of compassion. And this heart of compassion, it's, it is all over the place in the Gospel of Luke. You see it in Jesus everywhere, maybe even more so than the rest of the Gospels. Because you read through this, you know who Jesus is hanging out with all throughout this Gospel? The people nobody hung out with. The marginalized, the outcasts, over and over again, we see Jesus reaching out to them, extending out to the people that nobody else would. In fact, my, maybe my favorite encounter in the entire Gospels, it's in Luke chapter 13. And it's between Jesus and this woman who we are told has been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. And the spirit has, has, has left her bound up, has, has left her hunched over. And Jesus tells us that, that the Satan or the accuser has used this spirit to keep her bound up. But other than that, we're not really given a whole lot more in terms of where this illness came from. But we can be sure of one thing, that in her world, and her day, she was on the outside looking in. Because physical illnesses like this carried with them social repercussions. This is the assumption that would have been made about her. Obviously, you or somebody you're related to did something awful. You committed some sort of sin and this is God's way of getting back at you. Obviously, somebody did something wrong. And so in their mind, her illness was a form of divine justice. And so she would have been labeled as unclean and forced to live on the fringes of society. Now keep that in mind because with that in mind, verse 12 of Luke 13 to me is beautiful. Jesus reaches out to her. Verse 12 says this, when Jesus saw her, when Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Women, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. When Jesus saw her, you have to wonder how long in advance since anybody saw her. Since anybody truly looked at her. Much like our day, people who are marginalized, who live on the fringes, they tend to blend into the social landscape, tend to be forgotten. Jesus saw her. He looked at her through the eyes of compassion. And in doing that, he knew that she was way more than the assumptions, way more than the overly simplistic explanations that everybody had about her. I mean, Jesus knew that there were things that happened. I mean, what woman wakes up one day and says, you know what I want to do? I want to live this kind of life. 
Things happened to get her there. And Jesus knew all of that. And he sees her and he looks at her and then he speaks a new word over her. It's his daughter. Later he calls her a daughter of Abraham. Man, and in and, and that world, that's a, such a, a term of endearment. It's a powerful thing to say to somebody. Essentially what he's saying to everybody else is she's just as much an insider as, as anybody else. And he places his hands on her and he begins to set things right. And one of the names for God is the God who sees me. It's El Roy. That's what it means. The God who sees me. I feel like there's some people in the room who need to hear that. God sees you. He sees all the things that make you great, all the things that make you not so great. He sees your good side, he sees your bad side. He knows everything that's happened to you and everything that hasn't happened to you to lead you to the place you are today. He sees you. And it doesn't scare him. You know what I believe? It's in that place where we, where we realize that. We can't hide. It's not doing us any good anyway. But we stop running and we let ourselves be seen by God. It's in that place where we too begin to hear that new word from God calling us in a different direction to where we begin to experience the healing presence of Jesus in our lives. I could spend the rest of the morning hanging out there, couldn't we? But I don't want to do that because this is about us committing ourselves to the way of Jesus. And so as great as this is, as important as it is for us to receive for ourselves, ultimately, here's my question for us. Who do you see? Who are you losing sleep over? Maybe I'll ask it this way. Who or what are you weeping for? Remember, we are called to be people who pick up the cross, who demonstrate the compassion we've received to other folks. So let me ask you again, who do you see? Who are you losing sleep over? Who or what are you weeping for? See, the thing about compassion is, compassion requires proximity. Here's what I mean by that. Compassion requires you and I to get up, up close and personal. Compassion is not something you can have from a distance, but it requires us to see, to feel, to get involved. Remember, what is compassion? You feel it in your guts. You feel it in your bowels. You feel it right here at the core of who you are. You feel it. Compassion is not something you can have from a distance. It's funny, I've noticed that my wife and I, we, we play this game with our minivan and the gas tank. Y'all laughing, because maybe you know something about this, right? The minivan is the car we share. You know, with three kids, we both drive that from time to time. I never thought I'd drive a minivan. Being a parent ruins you. I'm, just, I'm not cool anymore. You know, but this minivan, what I've noticed is we play this game with the gas tank, and, and it's a really simple game. We've never talked about this. You just kind of know you're playing it. Do you have things like that in your marriage, right, or in your family? But the game's simple. It's whoever actually has to end up putting gas in the gas tank loses, right? And so we'll, we'll let that thing get down as low as possible. And I think here's the rule that we have, <coughs> even though, again, I've never asked her, but I think the rule is you're fine as long as the light doesn't come on. If the light comes on, then you are responsible for getting gas. And I know this is the rule because typically when I'm in the car and the light comes on or she's in the car, the light comes on, there's a phone call made. And the question is, how long has the light been on, right? <laughs> well, 
Well, I don't know, honey. The funny thing is, it didn't come on for me. It came on for you, which means, I guess you got to get gas, right? And so I find myself driving around. It's like, as long as I don't know, right? I'm going to try as hard as I can to not see how much gas is in the gas tank. That way I don't feel responsible. And so I'll be driving around, try as hard as I can. Don't look at the dashboard. Keep your eyes on the road, right? As long as I don't see it, as long as I don't know it, then I don't have to do anything about it. Y'all know where this is going, right? And this sometimes our posture towards the world. As long as I don't see it, as long as I don't know about it, then I won't feel bad about it. And if I don't feel bad about it, then I won't have to do anything about it. I mean, we live in a culture that, that seduces us and is spending all of our energy. We're, we're the wealthiest country in the world. We have more than everybody else. And we're seduced into thinking, here's what you do with that wealth. Do whatever you have to do to insulate yourself from everything else. Don't feel that stuff. In fact, distract yourself from those things. It's like, hey, you feeling a bit empty about your life? You're a little depressed? You're a little bored? You're a little tired? You're frustrated? Here's what you need to do. Go on a cruise. Or go buy something. What do we call this? Retail therapy? Right? And so what ends up happening is you and I, we, we get distracted. We get sucked into a bunch of stuff that in the end doesn't really matter. Moment of confession. See, these are one of those messages that you wrestle with all week and it really hurts. And then when I get up here, it's like therapy. I'm just going to share it with y'all. This really bothered me. Why do I know more right now about NFL free agency than I do about what's going on this, in, in Syria? a luxury we have. We're so distracted by stuff that you know what really doesn't matter. Some of us, we know more about our favorite reality TV stars than what's going on in our own community or even our own neighbors. So we get sucked into, into this sort of, we numb ourselves, we insulate ourselves. We don't feel that kind of stuff. We see the way of the cross leads us right smack dab into the middle of it. It's the way of compassion. Who are you losing sleep over right now? What are you weeping for? Compassion requires proximity. And here's what I've noticed, I've found, is that new life, like real life, abundant life, both in us and the work that God wants to do in us, but also in the world around us. You know where that stuff really begins? With disruption. And we can't play those games anymore. It's when we suddenly come face to the face of the fact that things aren't Okay. And fantasy football doesn't seem to matter that much anymore. Like my wife, she has taught me so much about this. She's one of my heroes. And, and I've watched her for the past several years get more and more involved in advocating, speaking out for women who live in at-risk situations all over the world. She's gotten involved with some incredible places, organizations like Noonday. If you don't know what that is, Google it. It's incredible. But this whole thing began. You know where it started for her? Her cousin went on a mission trip to Haiti. And when she came back, she had put some pictures up on Facebook, and there was a picture of her cousin holding a little boy who was about the same age as our oldest, our son. And he was laying in her lap. And he was emaciated. You could see his ribs. His eyes were sunken in. And the thought she had was, that's somebody's son. That could be my son. And the thought she had was, you know what? It's not okay. No mother should have to go to bed at night wondering if their child's going to survive because they haven't got enough to eat. That isn't okay. 
Now, typically, here's why she's my hero. Typically, when you and I start to feel that kind of stuff, what do we do? Distract myself. I'm not watching that. Turn it off. Turn the page. My wife didn't do that. She leaned into it. And she's continued to lean into it. And God's used her to do some amazing things. But more than anything, you know what some of us need more than anything is for God to mess us up. To disrupt us. Because the truth is we're distracted by a whole bunch of stuff that really doesn't matter. Did you know last year South Carolina was found to be the ninth poorest state in the country? I don't feel like we necessarily feel that, do we? Ninth poorest state. In fact, every single night, one out of four kids under the age of five goes to bed hungry in our own state. Does that bother you? Bothers me. Since they've, since they've been keeping track, South Carolina has ranked in the top 10 in terms of domestic violence. Bottom line, here's the deal. More women get beat in this state than almost any other state in the country. When it comes to deadly violence against women, we're right there at the top two. Does that bother you? It should. It bothers me. The fact in our own state, girls are kidnapped and forced into sexual slavery. Is that okay with you? It's not okay with me. Should we be weeping over this? Yes. See, compassion begins with proximity, allowing God to disrupt us in whatever way possible. But then it doesn't stop there because my next question is, what are you going to do about it? Because compassion also requires passion. You see, compassion isn't sympathy. It's not just empathy, right? It's not just having a sad feeling about something. Compassion, wherever sympathy stops, compassion keeps going which means that it requires action. Specifically, it requires sacrifice. This word passion, I love it. The first time it was ever used in its history, it was used to describe the sufferings of Christ. That's why the movie was called The Passion of the Christ. It's sacrifice, folks. My question is, what is your commitment to the way of Jesus costing you right now? One of my heroes, he says, that the kingdom of God grows where you and I choose to bleed. Where are you bleeding right now? I mean, if you were to take an inventory of your life, look at how you, how you spend your time, your energy, your resources, how much of that is about your kingdom and how much of it is about God's kingdom? I mean, are we just giving Jesus our loose change? Or does he have our whole lives? And see, Jesus invites us, remember where this starts, invites us to take up our cross. And taking up our cross is way more than just bearing up under life's difficult circumstances. I mean, I heard people say, you know, they get, they get a flat tire on their way to work. I'm just taking up my cross. Or dealing with a difficult in-law. Listen, I'll pray for you. You pray for me. I said, yeah, I get that. That's not taking up a cross. The cross is about how far God was willing to go in order to rescue a world that God loves. Taking up our cross is about following Jesus into the broken places of the world and partner with him and putting the pieces back together. What's that look like for you? I'm excited to share with you an opportunity coming up for our church. We've just gone into a partnership with an organization called Circles USA. I am so excited for what I think that this partnership can do, not only for the community around us, but also for you and I. The way God's going to use it to rescue us from our indifference, from our apathy. You know, this community is so strategically placed. It is. I mean, you go out into the country, we've got rural poverty. You go into the inner city, we've got plenty of it down there too. And we're right smack dab in the middle of it. 
Well, Circles USA is this organization that is committed to helping communities deal with poverty in a very holistic way, a healthy way. And there's sort of two sides to it. On one side, they come in and do some massive research to get to know your area. And they come back with sort of a three-dimensional picture on what poverty looks like where you live. And what they do is they identify barriers. Like what are some of the things that are keeping people stuck in poverty? They just did this in Greenville, believe it or not. And one of the, a couple of things they found was, you know, one of the barriers for folks is, is transportation. There's not a lot of free public transportation to get people where they need to go if they're trying to find work, if they're trying to get out of poverty. Another thing they found out is it's, it's, a, it's called the cliff effect, and it's based on legislature. And so you've got a woman, let's say she's a woman, she's a single mom, she's making $9 an hour. She gets a $2 raise, making $11 an hour. Sounds great, right? Yes. She takes that raise, she could simultaneously lose $600 a month in support. So what's she going to do? You see what I'm talking about here? There's barriers. There are things that are keeping people stuck in poverty. And so circles will help us identify those things. And then we as a church, guess what? We get to creatively do something about it. And there are people in this room, you can do something about it. You have the means to do something about it. You have the creativity. You have the God-given gifts and abilities to think about how to remove these barriers. So that's one side of it. The other side of it, it's relationships. Because the only way people really move out of poverty is getting better relationships. There's bad decisions that are made. There's habits. There's things that have led them to where they're at. We get to come alongside of them. We'll have trained folks from our church that are called allies. And multiple allies will be partnered with somebody that they call a circle leader. This is somebody coming out of poverty who wants to get out of it. And they enter into a, a, a year and a half long relationship. And they meet every single week. And what they do is they set goals. What's it going to take for you to become independent, to become self-sufficient? Y'all, I can't wait to get this thing rolling. That's going to be a bit of a process. We're going to have an informational meeting about this coming up after Easter. So keep your ears open for that. But do me a favor right now. If you're interested, and I hope you are, write down my email address and shoot me an email. It's nick at mounthorobumc.com. All right? I'm not seeing many people write things down. You can write that down if you want, right? You got it in your mind? Okay, I see you over there. Email me, all right? I'd love to tell you more about this. Again, we'll have an informational meeting in between worship uh, one day after Easter. But y'all, I think this is, not only is God gonna use this to do amazing things around us, God's gonna change us through this too. Because let's go back to the beginning. Participation what? Participation changes everything, which is ultimately what this is about. And you see, I think Jesus calling us to live a cruciform way of life, to take up our cross, he's not trying to, to call us into a life of miserable existence where we just don't have any fun and everything is about suffering. No, that's not what he's doing. You know what he's doing? He's trying to rescue us. He's rescuing us from our indifference, from our greed, from a life that's void of meaning. Never, my wife, every time she's been pregnant, she's had a different craving her first kid, it was Tabasco sauce, like buffalo wings. She put on everything. It's weird. Our second kid, it was donuts. I had no problem with that one, right? And where we lived, there was this local donut shop called Bill's Donuts. And she got a craving one day, and so we went there. Bummer. And um, we walked in, and right away I noticed that there was this table of people, and they kind of had that feel of like regulars to them. You know, they kind of came there on a regular basis, and they hung out together. They were older folks. And... And while we were there, a guy came in, apparently part of their crew, and he came in late. 
And all of them were like, oh, I think his name was Joe. Oh, Joe, so good to see you, man. We didn't think you were coming. Where you been all day? What have you been doing? And Joe said this. He said, absolutely nothing. Of course, they gave him a hard time about it. There's no way you've been doing absolutely. What have you been doing? He's like, no, I've been doing absolutely nothing. And here's what he said. He said, when I retired, I meant it. I in no way want to come across as judgmental. I really don't. I don't know this guy. I don't know this group or nothing. But here's what I do know. I never want to get to that place in my life where the highlight of my week is spending an afternoon checked out at a local donut shop. I never want to get to that place in my life where the highlight of my week is vegging out in front of the TV watching my favorite show. I never want to get to that point in my life where all of my energy, my creativity, my life, what God has given me is spent trying to manage my 401k. Not when Jesus Christ has called us so much more. I just wonder what would happen if the church in America, just alone in America, would wake up and would remember what Jesus Christ has called us to. Not easy believism, radical discipleship taking up our cross, following Jesus into the broken places of the world and partnering with him and putting the pieces back together. I love the picture of that kind of world, don't you? I don't know where you're at with all of this, but as we head to Easter and as we celebrate Jesus Christ's victory, my question is, how are you gonna manifest this in your own life? What I love is, you know what? You and I, our hope is not in the, in, in, in if the world can change. Our hope's not in that. Know what our hope is in? The world's already changed. That tomb's empty. Jesus is risen from the dead. How can you take that confidence with you into some broken place in our world and partner with God in setting things right? I want to be part of that kind of church. I know we can do it, folks. So what I want to do right now, Jack's going to come up and lead us through one last hymn, but I want you to prayerfully consider how do you need to respond to this? Maybe it's as simple as when I ask you, what are you weeping for? You can't answer that question right now. It's okay. What's not okay, though, is, is not asking God, God to do something about it. Invite God to open your eyes. Maybe prayerfully drive through our community and ask God to help you see things the way God sees things. And when you feel that disruption, when you feel that pain, maybe you're already feeling it right now, do me a favor. Don't look away. Lean into it. Take a step towards it and trust that God's going to do something amazing right there in the midst of it. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you for your cross. Thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for what you're doing still today in and through him, particularly in this church. I thank you for these people who are here. And Lord, I pray that for those of us who need it, that you mess us up right now. Rescue us. Break our hearts for the things that break yours. Help us to follow you. Embrace your cross as our way of life. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.